Oh, good morning. Y'all did some good singing just then. Was that fun? I thought so. Good job. Um, I'm Josh. We haven't met before. Love, love to meet you. Um, it's fall. Got some fun stuff going up, coming up. You heard about the trail or treat. Going to be a lot, lot, lot of fun into this month. You should come. You should bring some candy and you should hand it out. Be a great way to love our neighbors. If you can't come, you can still bring candy. There's a big, big crate out there. You can drop it off so we can hand it out to thousands of people, we hope. So anyway, coming up in the month. Um, if you're new here, really, really glad you're here. I feel like it's... Um, gracious of you to consider uh, coming here and giving up some of your time and know that there's a lot of other things you could be doing and so means a lot to us and here's kind of how it works just so you know um, we usually sing a few songs then I get up here and talk for a couple hours uh, we're usually out by lunch and then um, we'll sing one more song at the end that's a joke about um, talk to no we will be out by lunch there you go um, but typically we sing a few songs and then um, we teach specifically we open up the bible what we'd say is God's word and uh Read it and just chat about it for uh, 45, 55 minutes, something like that. that. That is not a joke. That's the truth. And um, so the way that we usually do it is we um, do it in what we call a series. That just means it's going to take more than one week to get through all this stuff. And so um, we're in the middle of, or the beginning of an eight-week series. This is week number two uh, called the Jesus Creed. And to help you understand why that is, it's based on this idea, uh, this understanding of what creeds are. And if you're not familiar with a creed, a creed is just this. It's just a set of beliefs that uh, guide your life, right? Uh, you don't have to be religious to have creeds. We all have them. Um, the way that we participate in our families, the what reason that you work is all based on some kind of creed. You have some kind of belief that guides your life, right? Right now, maybe you're working extra hours because part of your creed is you want to get the promotion, right? So there's just this belief that you work hard, you get the promotion, and just how you guide your life. And you know, in the church world, particularly the Christian world, kind of uh, latched on to some creeds over the last 2,000 years. You might be familiar with them, the Apostles' Creed, right? This group of people who got together a long time ago and said, let's actually come up with um, a set of beliefs that will guide our church and our life. Another one would be the Nicene Creed, where a bunch of people got together and say, okay, what exactly is it that the church should be known for and how we should activate or live our lives? And so creeds are just part of the church world. Now, um, the interesting thing is, even if you're not a Christian, you, you got your other creeds, and there's kind of usually two reasons for creeds, maybe more, but specifically one is this understanding that you'd like to have a good life, right? Uh, all of us would agree to that, no matter where we are, we'd like to have a good life, we'd like to enjoy life, we'd like to, uh, you know, uh, participate in a way that brings us fulfillment and pleasure, right? And so, on, on one sense, a creed is all about trying to figure out what you believe and how you operate in those beliefs to enjoy a good life, right? That's one, one way, just the here and now, how do we enjoy and love life now? But the, the other side of a creed, I uh, don't have to be a Christian here either, but for Christians, this is a pretty big one, is not only do we want to figure out how to love life and enjoy it now, we also are suspicious that perhaps there's something beyond this life, right? That's why when you go to a funeral, you hear people say, they're in a better place now, or may they rest in peace, meaning there's still something going on in their life somewhere in a supernatural or spiritual world. And so we have creeds that go, okay, how do we enjoy life now? And then, okay, is there a set of guidelines or principles that we're supposed to follow to give us access to that spiritual world, right? Um, not sure exactly how that works, but we do know that there's something beyond the material, right? We, we love and can't really explain that through, you know, physical things. We have pain and sorrow. We have physical pain, but then we have sadness. We're going, that's not all physical, but we know that's real and perhaps that's, um, a picture or an indication that there's something out there greater. And so for all of us, we're all trying to sort that out, right? Uh, so two reasons I have creeds. One, you want to enjoy life now. You want to figure out a way to live in a way that makes you fully alive. And then 
if there perhaps is a, an afterlife, perhaps an, another world, right? Uh, we, I think, agree that we'd all like to get into that one uh, and uh, live in there, if that, that's the case. And I would argue, I, I believe it's the case. And some of the things are kind of interesting. Whenever someone gets to the end of their life, they never, ever say, boy, that went by so slow, right? Or never, in other words, uh, this life seems to speed up and go by really, really fast. I mean, you're looking up and you're going, wow, it's already October. How did it get October? You know, like you're working through that in your own world all the time when we're out to eat or hanging out. Someone will stop and say, enjoy these years with your kids, right? You, you give that advice because it just goes so fast, right? Some of you are looking back and missing the kids as little kids. And um, so just life seems to go pretty fast and no one thinks life is just really, really slow, and when they get to the end of their life, they go, wow, that just kind of sped by. I just would argue, perhaps it's because that part of you, your soul, wasn't meant to live 70, 80, 90 years. Perhaps our soul was actually an eternal thing, and if that's the case, if our soul's eternal, if that's an indication of it, then it makes sense that maybe there's a way to access something in that, and most of us use rules like, well, we just want to be a good person. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell if there's those things. And um, even for us in the church, we kind of go, we want to have more good days than bad days. That's kind of, um, kind of the creed for us. And so creeds have been around a long time. In fact, uh, about 2,000 years ago when Jesus showed up, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about, because kind of the idea is, okay, maybe there's a better way to live, a better creed. I'd argue that um, a creed is uh, not just based on some rules or some guidelines. It's actually based on a person, Jesus, and we'll, we'll kind of flesh that out today. But about 2,000 years ago, when Jesus arrived on the scene, there were um, two major kind of creeds that people operated in. Um, and it kind of originated in, in two kind of uh, different areas, one in a very religious area and one in a very philosophical area. So in one sense, you look at the 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, there were these Greek philosophers who started wondering about the meaning of life, right? So is there some kind of purpose? Is there more than just the here and now? Is there something to actually uh, do and enjoy both now? And then is there a way to access eternal, particularly if there's a creator, if deistically, some, something bigger than us, some supernatural world? Is, is there a way to access that? And um, about 2,500 years ago, uh, there became this, this word, this the scripture that explained kind of that creed. And it was the word logos in the Greek. And it literally uh, was defined and meant the purpose and meaning of life, right? So these philosophers, got people like Aristotle and Plato, uh, they started trying to discover and figure out if there was some big meaning of life. Like, is there some way by which life would be better to have more joy, more pleasure? And so these deep thinkers started thinking about it. And they used that term logos, which translates in our language to the word, some kind of word or purpose or guide, creed, to help us understand life. And so when they did that, they kind of started searching, and for a couple hundred years, didn't have a lot of luck, frankly. They still felt like maybe there's something out there, but they couldn't find it. They couldn't access it. And finally, some new philosophers came up with this, what's called Epicureanism, right? They're um, based on a guy named Epicurus, and he basically said, we don't know if anything's out there. We haven't been able to find anything. So our best solution is not even worry about there. Instead, focus on here. And their plan, this, this group of people, their plan was just to find as much pleasure as possible. So their, decider, their creed, their decision was the logos must be all about pleasure. So they ate, drank, and were merry, right? So they chased after any kind of pleasure they can possibly find and um, relationships and food and drinks, whatever it is. And um, as you know, we all know, right? Uh, pleasure is good for a little while, but you've had the first drink, you took the first pill, and that worked out at one point. But then 
that play the tape forward and no longer um, is that good for your soul or your mind or your family or your pants, right? All those things. And um, when you chase after pleasure too long, too long, right? Um, it eventually leads us to some pain and isolates us and uh, hurts the people around us, right? And so these folks are going, well, we don't know what else to do, so we might as well just so- soak up as much life and enjoy as much as we possibly could. And so their focus was just on consuming and consuming and consuming, right? Similar to uh, some of our society and what we're doing now, right? And then um, after these guys started doing that and realizing that wasn't going to work either, a new group of philosophers came together and said, uh, it was called Stoicism, the Stoics, and they said, we don't think it's about pleasure or emotion. We can't access the supernatural and find all of our joy in that. So they came up with a different plan. And here was their plan. Let's just be moral. Let's just pretend like there's a God watching us. And because we don't know if he is or not, but let's just try to have some rules and let's follow the rules. Let's be good spouses, good parents, good um, citizens of our um, countries, of our area. Let's get involved in politics. Let's join the Kiwanis, whatever it is, right? They had these, these plans and they basically lived as if there was a God, although they didn't know if there was a God out there. And what they discovered is life was a little bit better for them. Their, uh, you know, their longevity was a little bit longer, and they had better relationships, and so it seemed to work a little bit. But the reality is they couldn't actually spend too much time thinking about it, because at the end of the day, they still die, and they still go into the ground, right? So the Epicureans, they would gather and, uh, you know, uh, consume, but at the end of the day, all the stuff ended up in the landfill, and they ended up in the ground. The Stoics would go, let's do this, and the, but they couldn't think too much about why they're doing it, because they still were kind of empty, Still kind of lonely, and so the best they could do is, well, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, so let's just be good, right? So you get this whole group of people trying to figure out life, and the best they could include is there might be some deity, but if there's a deity out there, there's no way we could be in a relationship with him. So eat, drink, and be merry, or follow the rules. Now, as all this is going on in Greek philosophy, a whole other sect of people, the, the Jews, were kind of going, no, 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 the meaning of life is following the rules, Right? And ironically, they used the same word to describe that, the logos, the Greek word meaning the word, because what they understood is in the beginning, God spoke, right? So those words, and so they said, no, no, what you do is you cling to God's words, but the way that you do that is you just follow the rules, do whatever God says. They would understand the Ten Commandments, you know those, plus 603 additional rules that they spent all their time saying, if you follow those, God will be happy with you. But the problem was they weren't really good at following them. No, they were really good at judging those guys over there for being foolish, right? They were really good at calling out their stuff. But they, deep down, in the secret, understood that they weren't good enough to obey the rules that they were supposed to obey. In fact, like us, not only could they not obey God's rules, they couldn't even obey their own rules, right? That's why we judge other people by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions, right? Because even we know we can't obey all the rules that we create. Really simple um, analogy or... Example, uh, how many New Year's resolutions did you set up? How many of those are you doing now in October, right? Even if you're godly and go, I'm going to read the Bible this year, right? Can't talk about it, or I'm going to pray because now I bring it up and now you feel shame, which isn't the goal, right? But they understood that. We understood that. That is really, really, really hard to follow the rules. So what happened is, is they just started pretending more, pretending that they could follow the rules, pretending that they were good, but they knew deep down that they weren't, and they knew that they were in trouble. Now, um, what the Jews were hearing is this possibility that there was a bailout plan, right? They were so in debt that they couldn't fix it all, but there was these murmurs, this whisper that someone could possibly come and bail them out of all their trouble, right? Now, they were enslaved to uh, Greek culture at the time. They didn't have their own land, their own, really, nationality, even their own language anymore. And so they were hopeful that at some point someone could come and redeem their logos, or their 
um, their, their way of life. So for both sets, they were operating with some creeds. And uh, creeds are like religions, and let me just define that for you. I told you about it last week. You can go back and listen. Religion is this. Religion is man's attempt either to get back to God, follow the rules, build the ladder, build the tower. Man's attempt to either get back to God or become your own God. Not in this, like, arrogant, I want you to worship me sense, but in, if I don't know what God's plans are, if I don't believe he's real, if I can't access him, the best thing I can do is just build my own kingdom and operate in my kingdom, right? So religion is either man's attempt to either get back to God, reconcile himself with God, appease the gods by what you pray, how often you pray, what clothes you wear, how often you go to church, by what food you eat, right? All those things. Um, so either try to do all the right stuff so I can get back to God and appease God, or go, there's just no hope in that. The best thing I can do is just enjoy my own life, right? Now, the problem when you become the God of your own kingdom, um, your kingdom starts shrinking pretty quick because people don't really like to be around someone who thinks they're God. People don't like to be around someone who has to have all the rules and set all the things. And so this is, um, in this area, it's really, really lonely. And in this area, you're just really, really in despair because deep down, you know you're not good enough to appease the God of the universe. Now, while all this is going on, John, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, and finds out that Jesus, this guy, shows up 2,000 years ago, who says that he came to bring the bailout plan and to guide people in their life and give them a hope and give them a future. And he actually said that it's the enemy that came to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus goes, but I come to give you life in the fullest. That's both in the here and now. And he also says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, meaning there's something about what Jesus offers and that no one gets to the Father, God, except through him. Right? So he makes all these declarations. So on both sides, he's going, this creed that you're looking for is not some set of beliefs. It's actually a person. And John, Jesus' little buddy, who's one of his disciples, one of the 12 guys who started following him 2,000 years ago, became so convinced of this, he decides after Jesus' death and then his resurrection, proving that he was God, after those things, decides to write a biography about Jesus' life. Now, as Christians, we'd say um, that biography is actually part of God's word, it was inspired by God and empowered by God through John to give us these words. And John tells us in John chapter 20, his purpose of writing them. And he says, look, my goal wasn't to tell you all about, this is me paraphrasing, all about all the miracles and all the neat things Jesus did. I wasn't trying to give you a science book or a history book. I, if I were to try to tell you all the great things and amazing things that Jesus did, I, and he, said, he literally said, there wouldn't be a library who could handle all, all those works. Just nothing could contain it. And he says, but I write these things so that you may believe in Jesus, right? So his old goal is going, there is a creed, it's Jesus, and he writes all these things so that you may believe. And so when John starts his gospel, he basically says, in the beginning was the logos, the, the word, the way of life, the spoken word, the meaning of life, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then later in the first chapter of that book, he says, and he, Jesus, came and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, moved into the neighborhood. So Jesus shows up to declare his goodness and to model a way to live and to show how much he loves us, all these things. And so John starts out this book saying, there is a new and better creed, and it's Jesus. And then immediately after that, um, John then tells a story about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, this is a different John, who came to talk about Jesus. So that story kind of goes that he starts showing up and saying, hey guys, if you've chased after all the pleasure and you're in a lot of pain, or you've chased after all the rules and you're really defeated on both ways, there is, either way, there is a better way to live. And this way has hope and a future and an eternity and a full life. And you can have access to it. In fact, his words were this, repent. 
Now, in the Greek, that means change the way you think. Quit thinking this way. Quit thinking this way. Change the way you think. And this is what he said. For the kingdom of God is near or at hand, meaning you are so close. You're so close to the right stuff. And he, was saying, he basically showed up in John, John the Beloved, says about John the Baptist. He came to point to Jesus, to this new way of living. And uh, the way that he was pointing to it is he was giving all these people, both the religious people who realized they couldn't do the right stuff, and the people chasing after all the pleasure and just trying to perform their civic duties, who all were defeated and hopeless, he came to give them a, a fresh start, a new life, a new beginning. And the way that you're going to see that discussed is actually to be born again, meaning the old you and the old creed is gone, the new creed is available. And the way by which John did this, the Baptist, is brilliant. He actually invited people in to repent, to say the old way's wrong and there's a new way. And the way that he showed it, symbolized it, is he literally received people in where they could say, that logos, that logos, those are not the things. Jesus is the way. God has given us a way. Where there was no way, he's made a way. And the way that they're able to declare that is going, it's no longer about my kingdom. It's no longer about my plans. It's no longer about my performance. It's all about God doing all the work and sending us a savior. And so they would declare that. They would repent. And then John would actually baptize them in water, showing the old life going under, right? Which is a picture of the resurrection later. And then a new life coming out. Literally, it was like getting a spiritual shower. So John the Baptist is doing this. John the Beloved is talking about it. And then all of a sudden, when John is doing all this stuff, out in the distance, Jesus shows up. And John the Baptist goes, that's the guy I've been talking about. There he is. There's a new way. There's a new creed. It's Jesus. And he goes, behold, pay attention, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, meaning there is a way to get a bell out. There is a way to get an eternal life. And he declares that. And, this, and they're going, no, no, don't look at me. Look at him, right? And then Jesus shows up, and Jesus is going to do something really weird. He's going to talk to John. He's going to go, hey, why don't you baptize me too? Which is strange, because Jesus is perfect. He's God, and John's going, okay, I'm not really sure what to do here. So that's what we're going to pick up in a different biography today, written by another one of Jesus' disciples. Um, his name is Matthew. So I'm going to read this to you. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And here's what it says. Then, after the, all this stuff going on, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now understand, this is a flawed human being. This guy's weird. He's actually spent most of his time in the wilderness. The reason being is um, the guys who tried to obey all the rules, who finally, uh, they got found out. Something got uncovered. They got exiled from their community because, you know, the, the goal was self-preservation and performance. And when people started doing wrong, they get kicked out of the community. And the people over here who chased after pleasure and tried to be good civic citizens who didn't do a good job, they got exiled. So John started spending all of his time out in the wilderness with people who finally had some self-awareness because they finally discovered that neither one of these lanes were working. So John was saying these things. So he's been out in the middle of the wilderness. He doesn't have food, so he's eating bugs. He's got long, nappy hair. So John's there, and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, hey, watch this. Uh, I need to be be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. You're the the creed. You're the plan. You're the Savior. And watch what Jesus says. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill, pay attention to this, all righteousness. That word means right standing. Okay? These people and these people, all people, are not standing right with God. They're not. They've tried their own plans. Either they've tried to attempt to appease God, and they're not good enough, or they became their own gods, which obviously has wrecked their lives. And he's going, all these people are not in right standing with God. So I'm going to do this to fulfill all, all people's right standing. So John goes, okay, you're the boss. If this is your plan for restoration, your plan for redemption, then I'm going to obey. And it says, then John consented. 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. So he's going in the water, he's coming out. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. So what we see here is Jesus comes out, right? He comes in the water, and he comes out, and then all of a sudden, this is really, really neat, all of heaven opens up. Now remember, while we're trying to figure out the here and now, how do we participate in life and, you know, enjoy now, we're suspicious that perhaps there's an afterlife. Perhaps there's a possibility that we could connect back to God. So really, we're going, okay, how do we perform good enough? What kind of rules, what kind of creeds, what kind of beliefs do we need to have access, to get access to God in heaven? No, in this moment, Jesus comes out of the water, and God literally shows us the picture. And he goes, no, 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 you don't open up heaven. You don't get back into heaven, because religion is man's attempt to either get to God or become their own God. Christianity, through Jesus, is different. It's actually man's, or God's perfect attempt, God's perfect attempt to actually get back with man to be in right standing with man. And so the heavens open up, and all of a sudden, this is what it says. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son. So he's declaring this as God's son. He's declaring him as a deity. This is my son who was from the beginning. All those things, right? Whom I love, really important. This is God's son. He's in a relationship with God, a perfect relationship. Whom he loves, with him, I am well pleased. So all these crazy things, the, the outcasts are watching this. All of a sudden, the heavens open up, and there's a declaration about who Jesus is and his identity. So he's affirming Jesus as his son that he loves and he's pleased with. Now, by the way, all of us, both sides of this, for thousands of years have been wondering if there's a God, wondering if we can be in a relationship with him. That's familial. That's a family thing. We wonder if he loves us, and we wonder if he finds joy in us, right? All those things. And so God, in this moment, is saying this about Jesus, who just, just said that he's trying to make us stand right in the same kind of standing that he has with God. That's what we see in all this, right? And so we see this, and then heavens open up, Jesus comes out of the water, and it's a pretty, pretty neat moment. And you'd think they'd bask in it for a while. You'd think they'd talk about it. You'd think Jesus would have small groups and, you know, discipleship classes in that moment. Like, oh, come on, come on, let's, let's sing some songs, you know, get a preacher up on stage. Oh, this is really neat. Let's really lean into this moment. But I want you to see what happens. Immediately, right? Watch the next word. Verse, uh, this is uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, then, then. That means in that moment, not in a different moment. That means concurrently. Jesus comes out of the water, and watch what happens immediately. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That scripture is going to stay up for a while, so you can just look at it. It'll be there. Lots to talk about there. So what we understand, in the middle of God's glory, this is the first time he has shown his rescue plan. This is where the creeds that everybody's trying to figure out is front and center for all the people. God does something crazy. It says immediately, then, he sends Jesus. He initiates a plan where Jesus is going to be tempted, where Jesus is going to be persecuted, right? So God has just said, I love my son. This is my son. I am well pleased with him. So let's actually do some uh, tough stuff to him. You go, what? Like that doesn't even make any sense, right? So the God of the universe finally reveals his plan and immediately, he doesn't get to hang out there. He doesn't even get to have dinner. He, it says, then he was led by the spirit. God does this. This is God's fault into the wilderness to be tempted. So uh, we'll talk about the devil in a little while, so you're going, ah, see, that's weird. That's weird stuff. We'll get there, but before, I just want to point out one thing. Part of our messy creed is we believe, maybe, maybe we do, I, I believe, or try not to believe, but it's still, I'm suspicious of this, right? We believe good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people, right? You see a homeless person, and you go, they made some bad decisions in their life. Maybe they couldn't, uh, maybe they uh, led themselves into a, an addiction. They made some bad choices, right? Or you see a really, really bad 
uh, scenario in a family, and you go, yep, the parents are bad. The parents just are bad. You see a poor person, and you're, you're a lot of us, right? Or, well, the reason they're poor is they don't work as hard as I do. If they just work harder, not be lazy, all those kind of things, then, then uh, they would have the good things that I have, right? Now, some of you have been homeless. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you have been poor. Some of you have walked in pain, and you have a little bit more awareness to this. And you, your, your understanding of this is a little bit more evolved, or woke, whatever term you want to use there, right, um, than, than most. And you go, no, no, I understand. It's, it's a lot more nuanced than bad things happen to bad people, poor people make bad decisions, rich people make good decisions, right? I mean, it, it's a lot more complicated than that. But a lot of what we believe, right, is that when we do good things, good things will happen for us. And when we do bad things, bad things will happen for us. But this is messed up. Jesus literally comes out of the water. God says, he is perfect and does good things. He only does good things. And now guess what? He's about to experience some really, really bad stuff for, you know, 40 days or more. He's going to experience some really bad stuff, doing really good things and still experiencing some bad stuff, which messes with one of our creeds of going, well, if I'm doing good, good things should always happen. Well, according to this, it is quite possible you could be honoring God. He could be very pleased with you and love you dearly and still um, put you initiate some situations where you could be tempted or where you could uh, be in pain. Now, he does tell us later in scriptures that he'll never allow that to be beyond the point where he, we, can't, we can't submit to his spirit, right? He tells us that. But what I want you to hear here and understand is that sometimes, sometimes you could be doing really, really good things and bad things could still happen. And it's not because God doesn't like you. It's not because God's disappointing you, but it's because he loves you, right? And, I mean, if you think even further, and we'll talk more about the devil in just a second, right? If, if this is true, if there is an opposer, like there, if there's opposition to God, and there's opposition to what John talked about, God's kingdom, repent for the kingdom of God is near. If you're participating in God's kingdom, if you're doing good, it would make more sense then that the enemy, the opposition would notice that and go, hmm, he stands in the way, she stands in the way, and therefore work to oppose you, work to create um, obstacles on your behalf, right? Now, here's the other side of that. If that's true, if that's logically how things work, if you do good for the kingdom, then it's quite possible and likely that there will be an opposer, opposition coming your way. Then, the neat and sad thing is, if you don't do good things, if you're just worried about your comfort, worried about your self-preservation, punching the time clock, trying to arrive safely at death, whatever your creed is, it would therefore stand to reason that the enemy really isn't that interested in bothering you right? He's going to focus his attention and his enemy on those who are participating in God's kingdom. So therefore, it'd be like, well, it's quite possible that the reason nothing, no opposition's happening in your life is because the enemy's not really that worried about the current things that you're doing. In other words, they're not very beneficial or restorative for the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that's always the case. These are big, broad strokes, but it's at least something to consider here that's different than our current logos or creed, this idea that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, because right here, you've got the perfect person in the entire world, and he is about to be initiated into some temptation, into some pain, into some suffering. So you go, well, why in the world would God do that? Really good question. And if this is his first act after being kind of identified as God's son— then it would mean that this is pretty significant and God wants us to notice something in this. So I uh, hope your ears are perked and you're realizing that God could be showing us something really, really significant in this next interaction with the devil. Now let me talk about the devil for just a second. So there's, there's some complications with this, right? One, we really struggle with this idea of 
a devil. And some of us view it as kind of, okay, we got God on one shoulder, devil on the other, you know, the cartoons. And it's, it's a false belief, this, what, what's called dualism. This idea that God and Satan are like perfect enemies and they're perfect rivals and they just, like they're, they're arm wrestling and you're like, I'm not sure who's going to win. Like, like they're equals. Like, um, that's just not true, okay? God is the author of all things. He, he spoke the world into existence and he happened to create the enemy. Okay. Uh, there's some really interesting understanding of how the devil comes to play. He was an angel, worshiping God, supernatural being that God created for his glory. And this guy, like we have, choice, goes, I'm more interested in my glory than, than yours, and gets kicked out of heaven, right? That's the, the, the really quick, um, small, a very abridged version, right? And so they're not equals, right? God is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere. Satan is none of those things, right? He can exist in one place. He can't know all things. He does not have all the power in the world, but he does exist. So we got to understand that he exists. We, gotta, we don't need to give him credit for all the things that most of us in the spiritual realm want to give him credit for, or, but we also need to make sure we don't act like he doesn't exist. So that they're not dual, it's not dualism. It's not that they're, they're equals, right? The other way that a lot of us look at it, or a lot of people in the world look at it, is what's called monism, meaning God and Satan are good and bad, devil, they're, they're kind of one and the same. It's like the yin and the yang, right? It's like, well, if there's a clockmaker god, uh, deistic god out there, he just creates it, and he does both. He is both bad and good because, you know, you're supposed to evolve. You've got pantheism, panentheism that goes, God is all things, so therefore evil is all things. Cancer is God, but it's also the devil, and all these things, and the belief is going, well, we can embrace whatever life co- comes our way because that's God, and he's doing this so that we can evolve if there's some God, or look at it and go, well, God is everything, and so that's also not what a devil is, and so we've got those things, and but it gets a little more complicated uh, because when we look at it, we go, well, we believe evil exists, right? So that's a pretty good explanation that we go, okay, we do know there's good and bad, right? We, we all would agree with that. And so what we t- tend to try to do is we tend to try to in- intellectualize evil, which makes sense because that's all we can do. We don't really understand it. And even this idea that God would create Satan is just, I mean, it's, it's hard for us to get, right? And so what we do is we go, well, I don't want to, that makes sense to think about all that stuff. But what I can do is I can look in front of me and go, there's evil, right? And uh, somehow evil got here. And so we've kind of reduced the reason for evil to kind of three different categories, okay? The first one would be family of origin. We can look at someone who's evil, right? And we can go, their parents must have done something to them. Their dad must not have been loving, or their grandparents, or whatever it is. And we can go, evil exists as a result of some kind of outside influence on that person. Now, I'm convinced we would look at every single human being differently if we knew their entire story. But I don't know that it's a symbol to go, it must be just the parents' fault. Because what made the parents that way? And then what made their parents that way? And then what made their parents that way, right? You, you fall at some point where we're talking about evil in terms of the behaviors, but we don't know where it actually comes from. So the first one we go is, goes, evil must come from the family of origin, right? Or the next one is culture. We all do this one. In fact, every time there's a shooting or something messy, what happens is the media journalists jump on it. They search through everybody's Facebook pages, their Twitter, their YouTube videos, and they try to understand what the culture has done to this person, right? They look and go, video games, guns, right? Um, Violent movies, got all those things, right? And then their culture, their religion, right? And this is where it gets really complicated because when we look at evil, here's, this is terrible, but one person's terrorist, evil, is someone else's freedom fighter. Same person. You see me? One person would go, that's a terrorist or evil. And the other person from the other side of the culture would go, no, this is the person fighting for our freedom, fighting for our way of life. And you're going, well, that's evil. 
So we look at him and go, that evil, that culture's bad, that person's bad. And so one way we try to explain evil is through family of origin. The next one is through culture. We go, you know what? They just need to be educated more. Or they shouldn't have been as poor. Or whatever it is. They shouldn't be that race. Whatever it is in terms of how we view evil. So the first one's family of origin. Second one is culture. And then the third one is evolution. Right? If the whole purpose of how the human race works is survival of the fittest, then wouldn't it make sense that the strong destroy the weak, right? By the way, cultures do this. Countries do this. They go, we don't need more females. Got enough, right? When we look at different cultures and we say, and we look at cultures and go, we'll use you for our gain, right? And, and we go, well, that's really terrible if we're allowed to say it's terrible because it's evil if we can describe evil as such. But if it's just, that's just what a culture does, that's just how it works. And if, if evolution is true, then it wouldn't make sense that the weak struggle and the strong survive, right? But here's the problem with even that, you know, concept of evil. Not only does the, do, you know, the survival of the fittest where people should be punished and destroyed if they're weak, but we also believe our minds and our hearts evolve, that we're more aware, more woke, right? Have larger hearts and expanded abilities to love and care and empathize. So on both ends, you go, well, how in the world does all that, how do we, what do we do with evil then? Where does, where does it originate, right? What's interesting, Tim Keller pointed this out um, in his book, Encounters with Jesus. He talks about uh, the book Silence of the Lambs. You've seen the movie, you know, Clarice and uh, Hannibal Lecter. I wouldn't recommend watching it. You just really wouldn't. But in the actual book, um, not in the movie, but in the book, there is a, there's a conversation between Clarice, you know, uh, uh, Officer Starling, and Hannibal Lecter. And she looks at him, trying to figure out evil, and goes, what happened to you? Right? Same question we're trying to figure out. What happened to you? What happened to you? And this is his response. So creepy. He goes, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. Officer Starling, You've got everybody in moral dignity pants, and nothing is ever anybody, nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can't you stand and say that I'm evil? Not that behavior did, but I'm evil. Am I evil, Officer Starling? Literally playing like you want to blame family of origin, you want to blame the culture, you want to blame uh, you know evolution. Can't you just look at me and just dis- declare that I am evil? Right? And so uh, typically when I talk about Satan and try to work it out, I think. It's one thing to try to intellectualize all this because what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand it all so then we think this education or policy will fix it, right? So if we understand evil, then we'll add some new education, some new initiatives, or implement some new policies, and all of a sudden evil will go away. But the reality is it's never gone away, right? It, hasn't, it was here 100 years ago. It was here 1,000 years ago. It was here long before we got here. So we would just say, while we can't explain evil, maybe we want to intellectualize it. The reality is evil exists. None of us would argue that. And if it exists, then perhaps someone is trying to help us understand how it exists. The scriptures actually say that the, the Bible says there is an enemy. There is a devil. And we go, oh, that just doesn't make sense. The Bible is so archaic and primitive. Let's just understand it some more. And we're going, but the more we try to understand, the more we try to intellectualize it, nothing happens, right? You can, get all, you can acquire all this information and we're still in the same spot. So I would just argue, okay, perhaps there is evil. We'd agree with that. And if there is an evil, then perhaps there's a, an originator of that evil. And the scriptures actually tell us that it's the devil. So we can't, maybe we don't understand the full thing of the devil, but we can at least acknowledge that there is evil and that there's an originator of it. So if that's the case, if there is evil, then it wouldn't make sense. We would figure out how to deal with it. Which would be a really good point of saying, 
perhaps, and I think this is accurate, this is why the very first initiative that God does in Jesus after declaring that he's God is shows us how to deal with evil. If in our world there is evil, then it would make sense that we know how to deal with it. And Jesus' very first initiative, the very first thing that God does, in this, or John does in the scriptures is go, I want you to believe, but in order to believe, I want you to be able to combat evil. So the first thing, whenever you think about a war, you think you've got to know your enemy, okay? His name's Satan. And then you go, well, what's his plan of attack? Okay, long intro to get to this, and here's, what it, here's the plan of attack. So here's what it says in verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's Jesus. Really interesting. One thing you see throughout the scriptures, for God to prove that he's God and for you to have great confidence in him, he almost always stacks the deck against himself. I mean, literally, he goes into the grave to come back to life, right? And throughout the Old Testament, he dwindles down his armies to make sure he gets credit for the win, right? And so this, we see Jesus in a very vulnerable place. Just point out real quickly, he was hungry. Like this is mesmerizing that Jesus was hungry. That means the God of the universe became so humble that he put on human flesh and dealt with the same things we deal with, to identify with us and love us and to meet us in our neighborhood, right? So he was hungry. So he is hungry. 40 days, he is weak and he's tired, right? So he's showing, this is what it looks like when you're vulnerable. This is how the enemy attacks and here's how you can respond. So in this moment, watch what Satan does. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, Tell these stones to become bread, okay? So he's going to say to him, he's first going to mess with his identity, right? Notice he doesn't say, you are the son of God. He says, if, dot, 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 right? He's literally, um, he's making Jesus question his identity. He's making Jesus question his connection to the God of the universe. He says, if you're really the son, are you really the son? Are you sure he's the son? Are you, are you sure God loves you, right? From that, from the beginning of history, when Adam and Eve are first tempted with a little distraction of going, you can have this, that's what God wants for you, but, or you can have this, right? All of a sudden, they, they make the choice to walk away from God, and since that point forward, in our mind, the whisper has been, do you really think God really loves you? Or do you really think you matter? Like, do you really think God's interested in you? Do you think he, he's pleased with you? Like, in this moment, you see, um, Satan's plan of attack is actually to get at your identity, right? Oh, no, your identity's not in Christ. Go chase after that thing. Focus more on your job, you know? Focus more on your, your looks, because that's where it's at, right? So he literally, the first thing he does is he comes after Jesus' identity, and then he actually goes towards provision, right? He tells Jesus to be his own provider. God doesn't really love you. You're not really his child, so therefore, your only hope is to be in charge yourself. Look, hey guys, God's not going to come through for you. Your best thing is take the bull by the horns and do it yourself, right? That's my, that's my natural bent. Just take over. If God hasn't come through yet, then it means I need to provide. I need to convince them that their behavior is wrong and my behavior is right. I need to make sure my children do the right thing, right? All these different things. Like I, 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 and immediately I get this whisper going, no, God doesn't love me. He's not interested in me. And therefore, my only solution is to provide for myself, meaning you should come back into the category where you're your own God. But you're hungry, and if you're the son of God, if you have some ability in this moment, you can actually feed yourself. In other words, you don't need a father. You just need to be fed, right? So um, he, he distracts us with the urgent. To, I mean, I mean, he distracts us from the important by dangling something urgent, right? And so in this moment, he goes, why don't you just make your own bread, right? You can be your own provider. And watch Jesus' response. Jesus answered, it is written. That's the logos. That's the word of God. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. This is important. He's saying, no, no, we got to eat. Man's got to eat, right? Man should not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's going, look, here's, here's what's important, really important here. You're going to be tempted. There's going to be trouble. And you're, yeah, you're going to have to eat. But your saving grace is actually going to be understanding what God says about you and what he says about, his, uh, about himself, right? So he's literally going, no, no. The hope here, your hope is that you need to know who God is and how he always feels about you. Which, by the way, by the way, is why I think it's so important. I'd love for you to keep coming here, right? It's so important that every single week or as often as you can, you get in front of people opening up this Bible and reading it and declaring Jesus as the hero of the story, right? You've got to know this thing. And this isn't shame. This isn't you should read more because God's disappointed at you. No, the God of the universe speaks. Like he, he is opening up and sharing his entire heart with you. And if you could fully get that, if I could fully get that, the way we responded to, to temptation would change, right? And so we got to figure out something with God's word. We got to figure it out. Right? He's going, so let me tell you, the first plan of attack is Satan's going to try to tell you that you're not loved by God and then you should provide for yourself. And his response is, oh, no, no, no. I know what God says. I know what God says. So Satan's going to get that and go, oh, okay, let's use God's word then. Watch what happens next. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, right? So he brings him up. God's allowing this. I'm not sure why, other than go, he probably wants us to understand something. And this is what he says to him. Watch this. If, there it is again, you are the son of God, again, taking a shot at his identity, throw yourself down. Just jump. You don't hurt. You'll land on your feet, right? For, remember, he just said that he's going to use the word, so Satan's going to go, oh, let me use the word alongside you. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Oh, you're saying the word of God. Okay, then. Here's what God's word says. And honestly, this is the place that it gets the most dangerous for us. Because there's two different approaches to scripture. One is called eisegesis. Eisegesis, that's E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S, right? It is when you go to the scriptures to pluck something out. Where you put your, your own opinion into the scriptures. It's where you go to the scriptures that make them say what you want them to say. This is where you go to Ephesians 5 when your spouse doesn't behave and tell them to submit, right? These are the Bible darts. This is where you think God is bad because, and you just point out that he wiped out the whole world in, in the flood, right? You just, you, you pluck out some scriptures, right? You pluck out the scriptures that go, God loves me just as I am, right? He wants me to follow my heart and chase after my dreams, right? And so there is, there's some real danger in just pulling out a part of the scripture, which is why, and I know you guys get, have to get irritated with me, that we continue to go back to this every time because the Bible is not just uh, some hand-picked out scriptures to put on your coffee mug, right? It is, it is one story sharing God's heart for his people and his plan of redemption to bring his children back to him for all eternity. The goal of the Bible is to convince you that Jesus wants you with him forever, right? And so the way that happens is he, the Bible is this story, right? It's what we call the gospel, and it starts like this. Creation, yeah, you've seen these, right? Creation, it means that God is the creator of all things, which is really helpful in understanding why in the world would God create us? And every time I'll tell you, it's because it's the same reason you decided to have kids, not because you thought life would be better or be easier, or they take care of you in retirement, right? You knew, many of us knew what we were getting into, especially on the second or third kid, right? You knew it. So why did you do it? Because you wanted to be in a relationship with your child. You know you're raising an adult, not a kid. And one day, not when they're in your house, one day you'll be friends and you'll hang out. You're their parent right now, but you're preparing them for adulthood, right? Because you want to be with them in a relationship. So the God of the universe created humans for us to marvel at him and to be connected with him. In the Bible in Genesis, it says, God walked in the garden in the cool of the night. Things are perfect. But the reality is you go, well, that's not my experience with God. You're right. 
Because from the beginning of human history, you see it in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, that the tempter shows up and goes, you can have God's kingdom or you can build your own. You can have God's kingdom, but sometimes he's a buzzkill. He's not as fun as you'd want to be. Or you can chase after all the pleasure you want. And guess what Adam and Eve did? And guess what we did? We go, we want our own plan. That's called sin. And as a result of the sin, what happened is there became this big chasm, the scriptures tell us, between us and God. And so all of the problems in our world can be explained and understood through this. We told God we like our plan better than his. Either we literally said it to him, or we go, God, we don't believe you're real. You don't exist. So the best thing I can do is follow my own plan. And God's going, you got to know the words. Jesus is going, i got to know the words. And so what's going to happen is Satan's going to pluck the fall and go, see, God kicked you out of the garden. He doesn't really love you. If that's the only part of the scriptures you know, see, God wiped out the entire human race through the flood. No, he put them out of their misery. Why? Because God is a loving God. And how do we know he's a loving God? Because the, new, the whole Old Testament points to the solution for this. We cannot follow the rules, and we cannot get ourselves back to God. So the whole solution is declared in this redemption plan, right? The word redemption in the scriptures literally means to be bought back. Meaning, it's the bailout plan that the God of the universe came up with a way by which he redeems us. And on the cross, he shows us his perfect justice. He says there are penalties for sin and consequences for bad behavior, and that penalty is death. So he shows us his perfect justice. But in the same time, he shows us his perfect love, and he goes, but I'll pay the price myself, and Jesus takes it. He literally buys us back, buys us back, redeems us. And you go, well, that's really neat, but why does he do that? Oh, because the goal was you and him forever. And that starts the minute you get the story of who God is in your life. He invites you into this relationship. And here's what's really beautiful. Then you, know you get to participate in what he always planned for you to participate. To participate in bringing the kingdom of heaven back to earth. But what happens? See it throughout the scriptures. You see Satan use it. You see it in our, in our, you know, in our society. People only want to tell you part of that. They'll tell you this part. They'll tell you, aren't you a unique and special butterfly? You were created. It's so special. Boy, you're so neat. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You be you. You do you. You follow your own truth, right? You got all these different things. Why, why, why? Because if you can follow your own truth and be your own butterfly, oh, then this world will be such a better place, right? You hear it. Like, no, 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 no. You be you. But the problem is the scriptures actually say your heart is wicked and deceitful above all things, right? So what is going, this is the story. Oh, be neat. Hey, Steve Jobs, you can, put a, you can put a computer in everybody's desk, and then you can put a computer in everybody's pocket. You can make this world a better place and more connected and more distracted, by the way, right? And you go, well, to what end? To what end? And so people are following their own hearts and doing damage beyond belief. Like, it's the worst advice you can give someone right? Some of the things that you thought were following your heart, that you thought made you feel so much worse, the next morning made you feel worthless, right? And so this is part of the story, and Satan wants you to hear this part of the gospel. It's true. You were creating God's image. Now the church has done the opposite. They've said, God hates you because you're a sinner. With their bullhorn loud and clear, God hates you. He's disappointed in you. You're a terrible human being. So repent, right? Repent. Ask God in your heart. You, Jesus died for you, so why in the world would you do that? You need to repent. This is all part of the story, right? They've got to tell you that God is madly in love with you. That he created you in a unique way because he saw you as perfect in his likeness. He saw you as someone who could do something incredible in this world. But as a result of our own sin nature, it's not going to happen on our own. But God proves that he loves you so much that he actually paid the price. Why? So you can get back to work on what God called you to do. 
right? So you can't just pluck these things out. So Satan goes and he plucks out part of it and goes, oh yeah, you're right, let me use your scriptures. Oh no, no, you gotta see the whole Bible. You can't see it without God's whole heart. You take just the Old Testament and go, God's really mean. No, he's just. He has a plan and there are consequences for sin. And if you don't get to the story of Jesus, you never get that, right? You just don't get it. But if you're just talking about Jesus just loves me. Yes, he loves you so much that God murdered him. Right? I mean, so this is, this, is, this is beyond those things. He loved you so much that he paid the price so you wouldn't live that way anymore. Right? So you could enjoy the freedom of operating in the way that God called you to. And so watch Jesus' response. <laughs> Jesus answered, oh, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see what happens here. See what we do all the time. In our arrogance, we stand up as the judge and the jury, and we put God on trial. Oh, no, we don't understand the devil. We'll just do our own thing. Really, God, this is your plan? Oh, it's a beautiful and brilliant plan. And it's crazy and reckless. He literally dies. He shows up on this planet and is humiliated and flogged and stripped naked. And he dies. Right? And we go, oh, I don't understand it. Right? In our intellect, we think we're so evolved and so educated. We want to intellectualize the whole thing. And literally what, what Jesus says is, how dare you put God on trial? Don't put God to the test. God's not on trial. God is the creator of all things. He created us and made us in his image. And what he says is best for us. And what he says is true and holy and perfect. So yes, God is loving and gracious, but he is a perfect and holy God. And so for us to stand there and tell God how he should behave, you understand the arrogance of it. By the way, that's the very arrogance that got Satan kicked out of heaven. The idea that he goes, no, no, I know better. Jesus going, don't put the Lord God test. And watch what Satan does now. And finally, 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 we get an understanding of why evil happens and what Satan's goal is. Watch this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. So he shows up and goes, look, look, look at all this. Now, this is beautiful. Uh, you see it in Romans. It says that people lost sight of creator and started worshiping creation. So the first thing he'll do is go, look at all these magnif- magnificent things. Be mesmerized by it. And then this is what he says. All this I will give you. Such a lie. He said, if you bow down and worship me. So now we understand the purpose of evil. The purpose of evil is to get our worship. Don't believe me? What we worship is comfort. What we worship is safety. So what do you do when you hear about the last gun attack or the last evil thing? Immediately you go to your backup plan, your plan of safety, your plan of attack, or your self-preservation. Those are the things we worship right? And so when evil comes up, we don't run to God and go, God, God, you are still good, and you're still on the throne, and you are holy, and you have a plan. We go to, what can we do to fix this? How do we fix this? Who do we need to talk to? Where do our kids need to go? I need to get to the school right now, right? Whatever those things are, right? We immediately go to what the things that we worship. You know, they're good things, our family and uh, our job. So we go to the things that we can control. And so what Satan's saying here in this moment is, what I'm trying to do is get you to offer me your worship. He knows our propensity to worship things. He knows our propensity to have to be connected and um, consumed by things. And so Satan goes, all you got to do is worship me. By the way, Sometimes he's not really that interested in you worshiping him. He's not always trying to destroy you. He'd be just as happy to just distract you until you die. Just as happy, right? And so he's, he's calling us. He's tempting us to give our affections and attention to anything other than the holy and perfect God. Now watch Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So you want to know the plan of attack for evil? It's not fixing it. 
It's not coming up with a strategy. It's not any of those things. The plan of attack is worship. The plan of attack is putting our affection and our attention into Jesus. It says worship him. And you see what it says after that? And serve him only. You know, I promise you, I promise you that Jesus has a plan for the restoration of our world, which is dealing with evil. It's dealing with injustice. But it doesn't happen from our clever abilities. It happens from us putting our attention and focus on him, and he will direct us on how to serve. Putting our attention and focus on the one who redeems, and then he'll direct how we restore. Right? So it's not, let's fix it, let's react. No, it's going, no, our response every single time to temptation is put our hearts and minds and hands and feet on Jesus. So we go to the word, not just the scriptures, but to the God of the universe who says he's the word, right? The logos. We go to him, and this is what it says last. Then the devil left him, and the angel came and attended him. So you're in some pain right now? Here's what I'd say. Praise is a prescription for that pain. You're in, you're in a place of deep suffering, and you're going, I don't know what's going on. Your, op- your, your best option is to look to Jesus and go, Jesus, you alone are worthy. You alone are good. You alone are holy. And you are the author of all good things. You know what's best. And never have I ever regretted obeying you and obeying your word. So God, 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 I'm going to worship you. And you please, please speak. Would you speak? Would you feel me? Would you, God, would you speak to me? And here's what's crazy. When you give your affection, when you give your attention, when you acknowledge him as Lord, when you do those things, he always speaks. He always speaks. Not in the way that you think you are, not in the audible, put him on trial. You do it this way, God, or I'm not doing it. Not in those things. But when you sit still and go, God, you alone are God, and you alone are good, and you alone are worthy, and you alone are holy. When we give God the glory that he so deserved in the beginning, it changes the way that evil. You see this. In that moment, Jesus goes, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to worship my heavenly Father. And Satan goes, I got nothing. I got, I got nothing. I, I got no artillery against that. Jesus says, in this world, you'll have trouble. Oh, but take heart, take courage. Why? Because he's overcome the world. And so what's going to happen is the few folks are going to come here and lead us in a song, a song you probably might be familiar with. And the goal of the song isn't to get you to stand and sing. In fact, I'd love for you to sit still and use these words. to go, God, you alone are worthy of my worship. You alone, God, would you speak? Would you help us understand what to do with evil? Would you speak to us? Would you speak? And if you decide at some point you want to stand and sing, you're welcome to. But you can pause and just listen. You can just listen and ask God to have his way. So I'm going to pray for us. And in just a second, we'll sing. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you alone are worthy. You are good and you're gracious and you are the author and creator of all good things. And you are a perfect heavenly father who only gives good gifts. And so, God, there is an enemy who would hate for us to get this message, this confidence, and you alone are worthy of our affection and worship. So, God, there's many of us in this room right now who really struggle with that, really thinking something out there is going to fix all the things. And Lord, for just a few moments, would you just direct our eyes on you? God, for the folks in this room who aren't sure that you're really good and loving, God, would they, they just be able to process this beautiful story of your scriptures that we were created in your image and likeness, we disconnected ourselves, but you did all the work to redeem us and then are inviting us into a relationship with you forever. One thing, we get the confidence of knowing that and pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.